Picture this. It's 1947, and you're on an Air Force base. Wright Field in Riverside, Ohio, to be exact. Before you are all the usual things. Hangars, planes, Quonset huts, the like. But there's something here quite out of the ordinary. Seen freely walking around the base, cordially chatting with high-ranking Air Force officers, are bunches of bookish men in suits. When they're among themselves, they speak German. They live together in decent accommodations on the base and occasionally have cocktail parties with the generals and their patrons in the U.S. government. This group, however many they may be, are just one small part of the approximately 1,600 Nazi scientists and doctors that the American government saved from prosecution and brought to the United States, a massive program that spanned from 1945 to 1959 called Operation Paperclip. Today, I want to take a look at the causes, impact, and legacy of this program, and maybe the uh, ethics of the whole thing as well. Obviously, this episode is going to touch on some pretty serious topics, including the Holocaust and human experimentation. So if you'd rather not hear about that, it's fine by me. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 121, Paperclip. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Operation Paperclip was born out of the confluence of a number of secret operations and organizations, so really, we have to start in 1943. After the Allied invasion of Sicily that September, the Americans organized Operation Alsace, a team of scientists that traveled with the front lines, searching for names and information pertaining to Nazi atomic, biological, and chemical programs. Throughout 1945, the American government believed the Germans were on the cusp of a functioning nuclear program, though they quickly learned that the Germans were not nearly as close to having a bomb as previously thought. Hitler, it turned out, had promoted ridiculous theories of Aryan physics, and considered atomic physics to be a, quote, Jewish science. Though atomic weapons ended up being a relative footnote in the full mission, the same cannot be said for the chemical. In regards to the design and manufacture of chemical weapons, the Germans far outpaced anyone else. While the manufacture of biological weapons is usually associated with Imperial Japan and their infamous Unit 731, the Nazis also conducted extensive human experimentation with viral and bacterial agents. For the science team on Operation Alsace, this presented a great opportunity, and they began collecting scientists and information from all across former German holdings. The Alsace team worked, sometimes in competition, sometimes in concert with, the Combined Intelligence Objectives Subcommittee, a group which was organized in 1945 under the newly formed Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, initially founded to operate what would become Operation Paperclip. In March 1945, a month before the Germans surrendered, a lab assistant found pieces of a long paper stuffed in a toilet at Bonn University. He turned it over to the British, who shared it with the Americans. This happenstance find would be integral to the successful completion of Operation Paperclip, as that lab assistant had come across the Osenberg list. In 1943, after Germany's Eastern Front began to collapse with the failure of Operation Barbarossa, Hitler ordered all soldiers with technical and scientific expertise to be recalled from the front lines, or whatever job they had been assigned to, 
and instead be put towards the designing of new weapons and defenses for a protracted war of attrition with the Soviet Union. Werner Ossenberg, head of the Third Reich's Defense Research Association, was ordered to create the list of the scientists and technicians who would be recalled, and thus the Ossenberg List was born. It provided a great resource to the Allies, and specifically to the CIOS, who used it to expedite their location and capture of German scientists. The majority of those featured were rocket scientists employed in the development of the V-2 rocket at Pinamunda. On the top of the list was Werner von Braun, who we'll get to later. Both those pursued by the CIOS and those sought by Operation Alsace eventually ended up being held in Kranzberg Castle, a former Nazi intelligent post in Hessen, as part of Operation Dustbin, which was the cataloging and interrogation of Nazi scientists, economists, and industrialists, ostensibly to see if they were guilty of war crimes, but in reality to evaluate their technical knowledge. Many thousands of Nazis passed through Kranzberg Castle and equivalent sites around Germany. Many were relocated elsewhere in Germany and given small stipends, while those with significant expertise were marked for relocation to America. Originally called Operation Overcast, after its secret codename became less than secret, it was renamed Paperclip in November 1945, in reference to the paperclips pinned to the files of Nazi scientists tapped for new lives in America. At the same time this secret rat line was exporting Nazis to the United States, it was shielding them from those who sought to bring them to justice. Dr. Leo Alexander was one of the chief medical advisors in the Nuremberg Doctors' Trial. It was his job to collect evidence, interview witnesses, and recommend whether or not someone should be tried for war crimes. Many of the criminals he believed should have been prosecuted at Nuremberg, like Walter Schreiber, formerly the Nazi Surgeon General, were instead marked for escape to the U.S. It was at this point, when Nazis begin arriving in the United States, that they go their separate ways. Depending on their expertise, they could go to a number of military bases across the country, including Wright Field in Ohio, Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, or, for many of the doctors, the U.S. Air Force School of Aviation Medicine at Randolph Field in San Antonio. Experts in rocketry were sent to the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, where they arrived with 100 V-2 rockets that the Alsace teams had secured from Pinamunda and their factory, Middlework. I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about the most famous of the paperclip scientists, Werner von Braun. I won't give you the full biography, but von Braun is often today, and was often then, popularly depicted as an anti-ideologue, a man of pure science who did not care about politics and wished only to build rockets. Now, suffice it to say that this reputation is the result of generous whitewashing on the part of the United States, which does not wish to wrangle with the complicity of any of their Nazi scientists. Von Braun himself was an officer in the SS and was known to handpick prisoners from Mittelbau-Dora concentration camp to build his V-2 rockets. The Mittelwerk, the vast underground factory built to withstand Allied bombings, housed the V-2 production lines and was supplied by slave labor from Mittelbau-Dora. It's estimated that a third of the 60,000 prisoners who were sent to the Mittelwerk did not survive. Von Braun surrendered to the Allies on May 2, 1945, along with General Walter Dornberger, the military commander of the V-2 project, who, along with Arthur Rudolph, had directly overseen their production at the Middlewerk. 
Von Braun himself famously felt no guilt for his use of slave labor, and arrogantly believed that his work was so important that no matter what he did, he would face no consequences from the Americans. It turns out he was right, and Von Braun soon became a powerful figure at NASA, serving as the first director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, later becoming the chief architect on the Saturn V rocket, which was eventually responsible for the moon landing. Back in Germany, the Nuremberg trials started on November 20th, 1945, and while they were successful in judging some of the perpetrators of Nazi war crimes, many others escaped punishment thanks to the interference of the U.S. government, which sought the scientists and their research for their own ends. One example of this is the final atrocities case prosecuted by the Americans at Nuremberg, the 1947 USA versus Kurt Andre et al., it targeted the administrators of Nordhausen Concentration Camp, a subcamp of Mittelbau Dora. It directly named von Braun and others as involved in the eager exploitation of slave labor. The case collapsed soon after due to meddling from U.S. intelligence services who wished to have von Braun's knowledge at any cost. If the amount of war criminals that went free were not upsetting enough, in September 1949, former Wall Street lawyer and president of the World Bank John McCloy was made U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, whereafter he promptly granted clemency to the vast majority of war criminals convicted at Nuremberg and restored the confiscated property of Germany's rich industrialist families that had gleefully used slave labor during the Holocaust. Many of the relatively few Nazi criminals that had been imprisoned were then freed, and families like the Krupps, who had built a slave labor munitions plant right next to Auschwitz, had their factories and properties restored en masse. Industrialists like Alfred Krupp, who knowingly and excitedly used slave labor and leveraged anti-Semitic laws to steal Jewish businesses, were freed and allowed to re-enter polite society. In America, Nazi scientists streamed into every corner of the country, putting, for example, their knowledge gained from torturing concentration camp prisoners in decompression chambers and freezing water to use in designing new high-altitude suits, pressure systems, and breathing apparatuses for American pilots. For their loyalty, the vast majority were given American citizenship. Only one of the 1,600 Nazi doctors and scientists was ever prosecuted for war crimes, in 1947, George Rickey, head of the Mittelwerk V2 factory, was named in the Dachau trials for numerous war crimes. He was eventually acquitted for lack of evidence. I mentioned earlier that these paperclip guys go on a lot of different paths, so to round out the more informational part of this episode, I figured I'd run through a few of the characters from this truly evil rogues gallery so we can see both what became of them and who our government likes to deal with. Otto Ambrose was a high-ranking chemist in the German industrial conglomerate IG Farben. He was a co-discoverer of the incredibly deadly nerve agent Sarin, its name an acronym for its discoverers, Schrader, Ambrose, Ritter, and Vanderlinde. After he discovered a way to synthesize synthetic rubber, a crucial resource for the Nazis, he received a 1 million Reichmarks prize from the government and was declared Hitler's favorite chemist. He was later put in charge of IG Farben's production of this synthetic rubber, called Buna. It was produced in a concentration camp called Monowitz Buna, also known as Auschwitz III, as it lay on the outskirts of the extermination camp. 
Under Ambrose's direction, prisoners were used for incredibly dangerous jobs, as well as in the human chemical experiments that still continued in the plant. Italian author and chemist Primo Levi was one of the many forced to work in the Buna, and one of the few to survive. He would later go on to record his experience in survival in Auschwitz. Ambrose was convicted of mass murder and slavery at Nuremberg, but was later granted clemency by John McCloy. He would later become a highly paid consultant to asbestos producer W.R. Grace, who I talked about in episode 93, as well as Dow Chemical and the German pharmaceutical company Grunenthal, where he was instrumental in the development of thalidomide. He died peacefully in Germany in 1990. Hubertus Strughold was the head of the Luftwaffe's Air Force Institute for Aviation Medicine. He oversaw human experimentation on prisoners from Dachau in order to learn more about high-altitude flight, which included placing people into depressurization chambers, freezing water, and operating on them without anesthetic. At one point, Strughold continued his research on depressurization on epileptic children. He came to the United States in 1947 and was sent to head the newly created U.S. Air Force School of Aviation Medicine at Randolph Field in San Antonio, Texas. It was thanks to his work here that he became known as the father of space medicine, and in 1962 became the chief scientist in NASA's medical division, where he was instrumental in designing the suit systems used by Gemini and Apollo astronauts. Yearly, from 1963 to 2012, the Space Medicine Association gave out the Hubertus Strughold Prize for whoever most advanced the field. He died in 1986 in San Antonio, Texas. Reinhard Gehlen was the head of the Foreign Armies East, the Eastern Front Nazi intelligence agency that was responsible for the torture, murder, and starvation of millions of Soviet prisoners of war. After the war ended, he made a deal with the Americans. The CIA would pay him $5 million per year to resurrect his Nazi intelligence apparatus and use it against the Soviets. If Gehlen happened to use his network to smuggle Nazis out of post-war Germany, the American government would look the other way. By 1955, he had helped over 5,000 Nazis escape to South America. He was later named the head of the BND, the West German Intelligence Service, which he led until a year before his death in 1969. Walter Schreiber was the former Surgeon General of the Third Reich. He ran a series of lethal injection experiments at concentration camps across Nazi Germany. Relocated by General Harry Armstrong to the U.S. Air Force School of Aviation Medicine, his presence was later discovered by Leo Alexander, the medical expert at the Nuremberg Trials, who was enraged at the war criminal's presence and exposed it to the press, which eventually forced Schreiber to leave to Argentina in 1952. He worked there as a country doctor, eventually dying of a heart attack in 1970. Arthur Rudolph was, along with General Dornberger, in charge of the underground V-2 facility at Nordhausen, where 20,000 prisoners died in the cruelest possible working conditions. He later, along with Werner von Braun, became the father of the Saturn V rocket. In the 80s, after knowledge of his war crimes became more widespread, he was given the choice of returning to Germany or facing trial in America. He left for West Germany, where they, claiming that the statute of limitations had expired, declined to prosecute him. Instead, he got West German citizenship and died there of a heart attack in 1996. 
Kurt Debus was the first director of Cape Canaveral, later the Kennedy Space Center. He was an ardent Nazi and member of the SS who was known to be so enthusiastic as to wear his uniform to work. He once turned a colleague over to the Gestapo for failing to return a Nazi salute. There is still a Dr. Kurt Debus Award issued annually from Washington, D.C.'s National Space Club. The cover art for this episode is a picture of Kurt Debus sitting between Lyndon Johnson and JFK at Cape Canaveral in 1962. Debus remained the director of the Kennedy Space Center until 1974, at which point he retired, dying in Florida in 1983. There's a crater on the moon named in his honor. Friedrich Hoffmann was a chemist and member of the Luftwaffe's Technical Research Institute. Hoffmann conducted scores of gruesome experiments on prisoners from Dachau concentration camp. In one case, he oversaw the murder of 324 Czech priests who were infected with malaria so they could study its effects. Swooped up by paperclip, Hoffmann came to work at Edgewood Arsenal in Aberdeen, Maryland, and Edgewood is an episode in and of itself. But while there, he worked for the army in the production of biological and chemical agents, testing them on prisoners, always without their consent, sometimes without their knowledge. He also participated in LSD experiments on unwitting soldiers at Edgewood. Under the army's protection, he was instrumental in the development of several chemical defoliants throughout the 1950s, including the incredibly toxic Agent Orange, infamous for its monstrous role in the Vietnam War. Later, he would work for the CIA in attempting to assassinate Fidel Castro and die in 1967, having faced no punishment for his atrocities. Theodore Benzinger was the experimental director at the Reich Air Force Research Station. He conducted human experiments on depressurization and death by freezing on prisoners from Dachau. Arrested in 1946, his name was added to the initial list of those to be tried at the Nuremberg Doctors' Trial. He was mysteriously released months later, and never faced prosecution. He was relocated to the U.S., where he worked at the Naval Medical Research Institute until 1970, after which he worked at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He died in 1999 at the age of 94. The headline of his obituary, printed in the New York Times, reads, Dr. Theodore H. Benzinger, 94, inventor of the ear thermometer. It devotes a whole two sentences to his record during World War II, choosing to portray him only as a test pilot, and not the designer and executor of gruesome human experiments. The list goes on and on. There are literally 1,600 of these guys, but... I'll cap that segment here. Operation Paperclip, this saving and whitewashing of war criminal scientists, represents only a small fraction of the ways in which the post-war process of denazification, the prosecution of Nazi war criminals, was a total charade. Formerly high-ranking members of the Third Reich quickly rose to the highest echelons of NATO and the West German government. For example, Adolf Heusinger, a man who had, as chief of staff of the high command of the German army, planned and overseen the invasions of Poland, Denmark, Norway, and France, who in 1944 was made Hitler's general chief of staff, after the war first became the inspector general of the Bundeswehr, the West German military, and then the chairman of the NATO military committee, one of the body's most powerful positions, equivalent to a chief of staff. 
Hans Spiedel, chief of staff to Erwin Rommel, in 1957 became the NATO supreme commander of ground forces in Central Europe. Johann von Kielmansegg, a member of the Wehrmacht's high command, would also later lead NATO's forces in Central Europe, while Johannes Steinhoff, a high-ranking officer in the Luftwaffe, was first invited to rebuild the West German Air Force and, in the 70s, was a chairman of the NATO military committee. The effect seems to be that some of those most guilty of unspeakable atrocities in World War II were not simply spared from punishment, but actively rewarded with money, power, and positions. This was all justified, of course, under the guise of the Cold War. The claim that actively recruiting Nazi war criminals was A-OK -okay because it would help counter rising Soviet power. I don't know how I feel about that one. In doing the research for this episode, reading about what these men did, you come across count after count of these absolutely inhuman atrocities. Truly devilish acts of sadism and cruelty in the name of science that I won't do to repeat here. You can just as easily find them in my sources in the description. But if you were to ask me what I thought was more important, that the United States have some nice new shiny missiles, or that the people who orchestrated the deaths of 20,000 men, women, and children in the tunnels of the Mittelwerk face whatever justice is possible for such a crime, then I think the only reasonable answer is, who the fuck cares about the rockets? Like it or not, the fact that the United States shielded these monstrous war criminals from any and all repercussions makes the United States a party to their crimes. Looking at the careers of these doctors, scientists, and technicians, it is easy to see how the technology of the Third Reich has influenced our own. And the fact that the American government, with full knowledge of their atrocities, recruited these men, and that the American military establishment became, in many cases, earnest friends with them, leads me to believe that the ideological differences between these groups may not be as wide as it seems. Thanks for listening this week. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe or share it with a friend. Thanks again. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Well, speaking of bombs, what is it that makes America the world's greatest nuclear power? And what is it that will make it possible for us to spend $20,000 million of our taxpayers' money to put some idiot on the moon? Well, it was the great, enormous superiority of American technology, of course, as provided by our great American scientists, such as Dr. Werner von Braun. <laughs>
That's not my department, says Werner van Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun.